Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show. Why are protesters saying they are supporting the Wet'suwet'en when the majority of the indigenous community want the pipeline built? The federal government says now it has the money to top up the LRT fund. Why didn't that idea come up earlier? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. A fascinating column uh, written in the National Post the other day. David Chartrand, uh, the wet sweat and blockades. Does everybody know what they're fighting for? We have the author of the column, David Chartrand, is with us now. David, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me on your show. Uh, I was surprised when I started digging deep into this way back when this was all started several weeks ago uh, that it appeared that uh, there was lots of demonstration for the Wet'suwet'en community, although uh, as I dug deeper into it and and talked to people like uh, Ellis Ross, who's uh, an MLA out in Skeena and such, and you realize that the majority of the Indigenous communities, uh, especially those along the pipeline, want this, are we really demonstrating for the wet sweatin' people, or are we demonstrating for the wet sweatin' people when they share the same agenda as anti-pipeline protesters? Well, I think that's the question that truly needs to be answered by protesters overall. If you start looking at this uh, this particular question, when you have signs popping up everywhere saying we we support the wet sweatin' people uh, and and their treat in their lands and their territory. But the question I, that nobody seems to want to answer, over 50%, obviously the clear majority, support the pipeline. And that includes uh, 20 elected chiefs of all the chiefs and bands and councils, and also red dairy chiefs. And so, so it's, it, it's quite confusing after when you have people that think they're protesting. I think people have not properly done their homework to evaluate what the issue is and how, what's taking place in that territory. There are some clear governance issues. Uh, that are at stake between the West Wing people themselves uh, and the Red Terry Chiefs. Uh, that's a, that goes back in history for a long time, thousands of years. And clearly we have to give it respect. It carries itself from, from their own tradition, their own peoples. And, but, of course, after 100 years, we also have now, which we have elected uh, bands and councils who have jurisdiction and authority who have been practicing that for close to 100 years. So, so now we have a situation where people are standing up and saying we're supporting the people of the West Wind Territory, but clearly at the end of the day, there, that, doesn't, that can't uh, really uh, face itself to being the, the exact point of view that they're supporting the people when the majority are supporting the pipeline. So the question you ask yourself now, is this about the pipeline, not about the people? And so if it's not about the people, then people should come clean. They should come clear. I'm against uh, any, any effects on the environment, any pipeline that's being done. Uh, that's why I'm standing here protesting. So they shouldn't uh, try to hide under the what's the way uh, issue that's happening in that territory because that's that's a serious matter between uh, that territory and those uh, those First Nations. They need to come to terms with their own governance uh, model. Uh, even on I put in my in my op-ed um, amongst the Red Terry chiefs, uh, if there is a majority of Red Terry chiefs supporting an initiative and the, and the minority doesn't, does that mean the minority can overrule the majority? Like, is there a yeah. consensus? Yeah. Is it through 50 plus one? Uh, is it, uh, is it uh, a veto? Like, what's the process amongst themselves? And I took a page out of somebody that I have so much respect for, the Mohawks. I have tons of respect. I've been a political leader for many, many years. 
and I've been president for 22 years in Manitoba. And we should mention and David is the president of the Manitoba Maidy Federation. I didn't mention that when I introduced you. No problem, and of but course, in, uh, in, has the article in the Post today. I'm sorry, go ahead, David. No problem. And I look at the, the situation happened uh, in the Six Nation Confederacy and the elected uh, chief and council when they were uh, debating who had jurisdiction over uh, that particular acre, 380 acres of land, I believe, was being transferred. And uh, that dispute and that uh, blockade came up in Caledonia and all the rest of it. But at the end of the day, the Mohawks, in their wisdom as usual, uh, took the decision uh, where the Confederacy of Chiefs and the elected chief and council got into their governance house and took the matter out of the courts, took the matter out of outside forces to decide their governance model and decided themselves how they're going to govern. And they came with a mutual arrangement of how both the traditional history of the uh, Mohawk Nation and their Confederacy chief system would coincide with the, we'll call it the new uh, system of the First Nations uh, chief and councils. They were able to amalgamate the two. They had a mediator, and they came up with a common, a common theme, a common approach, a common direction. That's, I think, what's the missing link. It's happening yeah. uh, in West Hawaiian territory. And I was hoping when they came out of the Mohawk meeting uh, that they would actually learn from what the Mohawks have done. And as I said, uh, I have so much respect for them because those uh, individuals that live there, the First Nations, uh, you know, they've learned their respect in this country. And uh, for me, I have tons of respect. But at the same time, we should also, they should also take a page of, their, of what they've gone through in the transition of how can, they can govern together. Because even if right now we have negotiations happening, and I commend, uh, of course, both provincial and federal government being patient and waiting uh, till the hereditary uh, chiefs are ready. Uh, again, there's only a few. There's, there's some on the other side that's supporting this. So when they get this negotiation done, uh, and I hope soon, and then the Mohawks are, are the main theme right now, and the Mohawks pull back and say, okay, uh, we've done our, our message of support. Now you guys have to uh, manage your own governance issues at home. So, but here's the issue. What happens when that's done? Who then deals with the majority? Hmm. The majority that all the 20 elected band chiefs and councils support this, all the other red territory chiefs that support this, all the people that support it. Like, how do you deal with them now? now that's an ongoing issue. That's why it was so complicated. And I know the, this, this rhetoric in, the, in Parliament that's going back and forth, that it's, it's simple just going there through a through a piece of paper there and throw your police in there and help everybody out, that solves the problem. That does not solve You know, David, as I slowly dig through this, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure it is that, you know, that complicated a problem because you've just explained it beautifully. I think what the problem is, is politicians and special interest groups are hijacking this for their own agenda. And it's all of a sudden not about the Indigenous community. It's about everyone's special interest here. Uh, well, I you guess... Know, I'll, give you a, I'll give you a perfect example, uh, Scott. When the anti-fur activists came into our communities and, and, this, and people would know in this country, the Métis and the First Nation were very uh, proficient in, in the fur trade. And we were uh, doing so well still throughout in the economies of scale uh, with, be- with our beaver and our muskrat and all other fur-bearing animals. And when the anti-fur activists came in, there actually was a, if people did an analysis, and which we did, it's about one-third of the income of many families. And when they came here and destroyed the entire fur industry uh, and stopped it and, you know, affected it worldwide, they all left. They all went back to the urban sites. They went back to where they come from, where they live in the urban environments. But nobody ever came back to replace that one-third economy they destroyed from us. They took it from us. Mm. And there's no, and in, in rural Manitoba and rural Western Canada, 
these economies of scale are so vital to us because there's no other factories there, there's no other economy. People say, well, get a different job. There is no place to get a different job. So, so when you look at affecting somebody's community, their economy, uh, you've got to be careful. So when I look at the crowds today, I know there's a, a wide swath of environmentalists inside there, but they have a different agenda. Yeah. They can carry the sign all they want, what's the way in people, I support them. But if you do support them, then how are you defending the majority of those who are in favor of the pipeline? You're not saying that side of your position clearly because your agenda is just against the pipelines. So you should come clean of what you're standing up yeah. for. Take off your mask. Show you are. Declare you are. It wouldn't surprise me if some American environmentalists are inside here. So, so when you start looking at this, it's, it's, it's truly, uh, the, I think, the West when people eventually will be misused by other groups. Mm-hmm. And, and, that, and that shouldn't be. This is a very important governance issue for the Westerwind people to resolve. And I think once they come to terms with it, then they can have a proper negotiation. They said, take a page out of the Mohawks. The Six Nation Confederacy, which is their territory chiefs and the elected chief and council, they resolved this. Or they, they, have a, they have a blueprint for you to follow. Mm-hmm. And, however, that's not being seen to be listened at right now. But it eventually will have to come to that because this can't happen across the country. And I've also referenced, and, and it's not in my op-ed, but environmentalists, are demanding so much to be done. And I said, look, I'm pro-environment, trust me. I believe in that, mm-hmm. but I'm also pro-economic. And if we don't have, and our governments, all governments run by tax base. If they don't collect taxes, they don't have revenue. How can they deal with an environmental problem that took us 100 years to destroy the environment? We can't solve it in five years or 10 years. It's going to take us maybe 50 years to get back into a, a better state. So it's going to take a revenue-bearing situation to fight the environment to a better position or put it in a better position because we took so long to destroy it. So environments need to stop and think this is both an economic issue and an environment issue. So you cannot just have it one way, and neither can the economy have it just one way. So, so when we look at those fronts, somebody needs to start talking about that. But right now, the blockades, I'm hoping this meeting is happening within probably happening an hour. Uh, we'll start the transition. And, I, and as I said, I, I do praise the Mohawks. I, I have great respect for them. I, I heard Mr. Deer uh, when he spoke uh, as a representative of the Mohawks. He talked about how they solved their, their internal dispute and how they have their governance house where the Confederacy of Chiefs and at the same time the elected chiefs and council meet and they come out with a with a consensual and forward position of what they will represent and how they will represent the Mohawks. And that's what needs to happen at the Western Women Territory. So uh, on the news, all we see is banners that say we are protesting in support of the Wet'suwet'en community. Uh, obviously, two issues here, the, the issues that you're discussing in regard to leadership and, and then also the pipeline issue. Uh, as you've mentioned, it appears as if the protesters are just taking a select few of Wet'suwet'en who are against the pipeline, not the majority who are for it. But why is this information not coming out, David? Why is it taking well, so long for that to come forward? Well, first of all, Scott, let me thank you for the interview and give me the time to actually explain myself well. Because if you look at it, too, like, uh, you know, no dis- don't disrespect the media, but, me, uh, you know, controversy self. And yeah, so yeah, you're right. the issue that's happening right now is that nobody seems to be asking the question. I think the National Post... Did we lose, David? That if a media, if a camera comes before you and you say, I'm there for the West to win people, then answer the question. How you how you are there for the over 50%? Both elected, all the elected chiefs and councils and the red territory chiefs and the people that support the pipeline, how are you defending them? So, so I think they'd have a very hard time uh, answering that. And then, so there's a mix-up also in the story that's going out there. They're saying, well, some are out there saying, look, I have uh, 
100 years of genocide, 100 years of hardship in this country of being mistreated, and I'm just angry and I want to come out there and state my time needs to change, which is true. We need to change the way we do things in Canada. But at the same time, that's not about the Wet'suwin people. This is a different issue altogether amongst themselves. And then what we can't have, and I'm sure that Wet'suwin people will tell you that, and a clear majority will tell you that, as the Mwaks would, you, you mind your business and our governance. It's our governments. We're self-government people. We had government before Canada became Canada. And so we'll tell people to mind your business. And same thing with the Métis. We have our own government. We have our own laws uh, in the West. So from our perspective, uh, we would never let no government come tell us how to govern. So I think from that perspective, I think this, that's going to actually come to the forefront. And these protesters, like, for example, here, they, when they go and put graffiti and, and profanity on, on, on a, uh, a statue that depicts all of the uh, fallen RCMP slain and, slain and killed during duty, and, and put profanity and spray paint uh, the RCMP uh, bronze uh, statue, that is, that is way beyond. How can you say that's helping the Westerwind people? That is a direct impact of, imagine the families, how they feel when that monument's there to represent all of those soldiers uh, and, and at the same time all of the uh, RCMP officers that were slain during duty. What if somebody did that to their graveyard and their parents and their grandparents or their, their, their veteran at home that they, they so much admired? How would they feel? So that is, that is not, how can that be supporting Westerwind people? That is actually, as I said, I'm worried this thing would get carried out of hand that if, uh, I wouldn't want to see vigilantism come into play here. Uh, I know that was a reference by uh, Mr. McKay on that issue. I think it's a dangerous m- reference. But at the end of the day, I think we need to find that people need to understand what are you protesting for. And if you are, then understand what it is you're doing. You're actually introducing, you're fighting against the pipeline, but you're then speaking against the clear majority of the Westwood people. So you cannot say you're supporting them or standing up for them. So, from what I'm seeing here, and correct me if I'm wrong, David, there's two issues here. There's the ongoing dispute between the federal government and the indigenous community over land entitlement, what that means, and how you settle that moving forward. The heart, the, the, pretty much the heart of what we're talking about. And then number two, who has the final word when it comes to leadership decisions within the indigenous community, the hereditary chiefs, or the elected band councils, or a combination of the two, because that's different from community to community, obviously. And, and those are separate issues from the pipeline issue. Oh, exactly. And in fact, but even with the Red Terry Chiefs themselves, that's, my, that's what I put in my hotbed, even amongst themselves, what's the model so all Canadians can understand yeah. and all governments can understand how to deal and negotiate? Because if, if the majority of the Red Terry Chiefs are supporting the pipeline and the minority is not, then how can the minority overrule unless there's a, uh, a elected system we don't know about or a veto system we don't know about that we need to understand? So protesters can then understand that it doesn't matter if 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 90% of the hereditary chiefs support and all it takes is one to say no, then people will understand that that's how that system works. But nobody knows because I and that's why I said the Mohawks went through this and they prove it can be done. And and and, and I said I'm hoping the Western women would take a page off them and learn and use that in their own territory and say, well, here's an example. It was done. That debate happened. Uh, the traditional way of our governance versus the modern way of our governance. So, but that's something that has to be resolved by themselves. Nobody can tell them what to do. That's the worst thing that anybody could do in this country. So from my perspective, but it's, what's important for us is to understand. Understand our system. I don't, and I've been in politics for a long time, and everything I'm trying to see and read and understand, I can't figure out how... The, those particular smaller minorities can overrule the entire majority. But if there's a system that we don't know of that needs to be explained to Canadians and explained to themselves, 
then we need to know what happened to those 20 chiefs and councils. I have not heard from them yet, but they all supported, the, uh, and they're elected, duly democratically elected chief and council. What happens to their voice? What happens to their position? What happens to their chiefs that support them and all those families? So what happens to their views? Somebody's got to be, sooner or later, that's going to come up as a topic. And then do we start a second negotiation or a second protest? But I'll tell you this, Scott, if the, if the pro-line uh, and, and uh, pro-pipeline uh, decided to say they're going to support the, uh, and they're upset and they started doing a protest, I guarantee you won't see environmental standing out there. Hmm. You won't see them by what you're seeing today coming out there in mass numbers and saying that they support the Wet'suwet'en people because it, it's not about the Wet'suwet'en people. It's about the environment to them. And that's what is wrong. It's misusing. It's using people, and they shouldn't. If they want to stand against the environment, say that's what you're doing. But don't mislead uh, anybody by saying you're standing for a people when you're, the majority clearly has told you what they want, but you're saying, I don't care what you want. This is what I want. Hmm. David Chartrand has been with us, President, Manitoba Mates Federation, and author of a column in the National Post, The Wet Sweat and Blockades. Does everybody know what they're fighting for? David, thanks so much for the time and doing everything you can to get out your side of the story. Uh, good luck. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, some uh, weird stuff coming out. We were just talking with Ryan McGrill uh, the other day in regard to uh, LRT and the task force that has been assigned uh, to try to come up with uh, uh, some solutions, some projects to spend the $1 billion uh, that Hamilton has from the Ontario government that uh, I guess we get to spend because the LRT has been cancelled. However, uh, now uh, Infrastructure Minister Catherine McKenna uh, comes into town and, uh, or sorry, was in town last year uh, meeting with uh, Mayor Fred Eisenberger and such. And and I'm not sure why more of this wasn't done uh, in the past, but now there is uh, chatter floating around that the government, meaning the federal government, uh, will contribute to this project, but the provincial government has to ask for it. Uh, to which my first question is, why are we talking about this now? Uh, it seems like the horse is already out of the barn. Let's bring in Ryan McGrill again, editor of Raise the Hammer, raisethehammer.org. He is with us now. Ryan, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Certainly, Scott. It's never a dull moment around here, is it? No, no. And just when you think that something's dead, it rears its ugly head again. Uh, why are our pretty head, I guess, depending on which, how you feel about the project, uh, sure. why are we talking about this now? Well, uh, I mean, to, it, I guess it started with uh, the Hamilton Centre MP, Matthew Green, uh, stood up in the House of Commons uh, earlier this week and asked uh, the Infrastructure Minister, Catherine McKenna, um, you know, there's an LRT project uh, for Hamilton, it's transformative, it meets the federal government's criteria for the kinds of investment it wants to do. Um, will the federal government step in and provide some funding for this? And Minister McKenna came back and said, we would love to provide funding. We would love to partner with the province, but we, it's a, the province's project and we need to be asked. So uh, I think it was a very fair question. And I also think it was a fair answer. The province now has an opportunity to reach out to their federal counterparts and uh, look for some funding in order to get this project back on track. Why would this not have been one of the options way back when? And, you know, even before uh, uh, Mulroney came in and cancelled the project in that hasty press conference or lack thereof that we remember, why why didn't this even come out way before all of that? Well, it certainly should have. I mean, if, if if the provincial government was serious in their claim that costs had spiraled out of control, and, and we know that that's not a serious claim. Uh, the numbers are just not credible. 
But if they were serious, there actually is a process or there was a process in place. Step one was to reach out to Metrolink uh, and say, are there ways that we can trim this project? Are there ways that we can uh, find some cost savings? Uh, they did exactly that in the Mississauga uh, here, Ontario one uh, uh, LRT line. They actually, the, the final bids came in and they were over the approved budget. So they actually had to trim back a few parts of the project in order to get into budget. That opportunity was never presented in Hamilton. We were treated in a straightforwardly unfair manner. Another opportunity for the provincial government at the time would have been to say, look, we have this project, uh, there's cost overruns, maybe we, there isn't an easy way for us to uh, find savings, so we're going to go to the federal government and ask for help. If they were doing their job responsibly and competently, they would have done these things. Any idea how much the feds are willing to contribute? Would it be enough to, uh, to, 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 meet, to make up for the difference and push this over the top? I certainly hope so. I mean, the federal government, you know, has the, uh, they have the biggest sort of um, revenue generating capacity of any level of government in Canada. Um, and this is, you know, sort of their, this is the kind of thing that they have, have pinned their, uh, their brand on, is making these large transformative infrastructure investments that, that grow the economy and transition our economy off of a dependence on fossil fuels. This is exactly the kind of thing they should be spending a lot of money on. Um, I, I could see them being a significant partner, bringing a lot of money to the table, but we have to ask them. Uh, again, no love loss between the uh, provincial government and the federal government here. Uh, is is this just politics? In other words, uh, the liberals know this is a dead deal. So to go in and you know scatter hope around uh, makes the current the Ontario government look bad and the federal government look good. Uh, is this politics, or do you think there is some credibility here that this could actually be a viable option? Well, I think when when the Minister of Infrastructure comes out and goes on record to say, we're willing to put money forward, we just need to be asked. If, she, if they didn't want to put money forward, there was a lot of different ways they could have answered that question. But they again, said, it, just, well, it, just, you know, we'll it just seems suspicious to me. And- yeah, I understand what you're saying, Ryan, but it, to me it just seems odd that this is all happening in the 11th hour. Well, I think it's the 13th hour now because um, <laughs> it's past the deadline. And again, yeah. where were the feds when this all started well they weren't asked i mean the you know traditionally yeah. the metrolink's funding model was that the province would cover 100% of the capital costs right uh, the operating costs would be covered by the municipality and the operating revenues would be shared with the municipality and the province that has always been the the model that they've gone by the the feds didn't offer money before because they weren't asked and uh, and the only reason we're having this conversation now is that the province decided to ignore its own process for what to do in the event of a cost overrun, and they jumped the gun, canceled the project outright three months before we were supposed to get the final numbers using uh, cost overrun estimates that are just ridiculous and not serious. Do you have any uh, speculation on how that ever happened? I mean, it, it just, you know, I've, I've heard some say that there were people within the provincial government that just figured that the half the population didn't even want this anyway, so there would be no backlash. H- how do you think we got here? I mean, I, I, I want to start by saying I don't have any inside information as to how this decision was made. Me neither. All I can do is look at it from the outside, but if you look at... The, the way the announcement was made. You know, the minister came to Hamilton. Ministers don't come to cities in order to deliver bad news, right? They go to the city to deliver good news, to cut ribbons, to announce new funding. They announce bad news from Queen's Park. So the fact that she came to Hamilton 
suggests that she thought that this was going to be a good news story. Yeah. She would announce, we're, we're getting this, this LRT yoke off your neck, and uh, we're going to give you a billion dollars, and you know, and that they would be celebrated for it. That clearly is not what happened. They've gotten an enormous amount of pushback. Uh, there's already been some reshufflings and some people moved around in the ministry uh, as a result of this, this total fiasco. And so now they're backpedaling frantically and they're trying to find ways to save face. So if you are the provincial government and uh, the federal government has just admitted, yeah, well, you know, we'll contribute to it. What, why would you not take uh, why would you not make a formal request then? Hey, you know, we're good for a billion. What do you guys got? I hope they will. I mean, I think right now they're sort of hiding behind the transportation task force process. Uh, and I certainly hope that the, min- the members of that task force are listening to this because, you know, as, uh, as uh, Tony Valeri explained earlier this week, he's, they're looking for projects where you can get a fast deployment, right? They want to get something started very quickly so that it doesn't get bogged down in years and years of, of you know, going back and forth and planning and elections. And, you know, this is a project that is already designed. It's all ready to go. It just needs the funding. So the provincial government kicks in their money. If the federal government kicks in their money, this is a project that could get started tomorrow. All right. I know you're a, a guy that's, you know, half full, not half empty. Uh, in, in our business, it tends to be the other way around. Uh, that being said, I am an optimist, too. How are you feeling about this? Because, again, I, I'm just worried that this is, you know, taking Hamilton's poor feelings again and just dragging us across a, a grinder here. You know what I think it is for me, Scott? The, the fundamental argument for making this investment is so strong that it's never going to go away. Even if this you know, fizzles out, the transportation task force comes yeah. to that back with some grab bag of random projects, or, you know, God forbid, if they suggested the money be used to fund something the province was supposed to fund already, in, in effect, giving them a, a, a way out. That's my that big would, worry. Yeah, that would be really unfortunate. I would certainly push back against that. But this plan, this idea of building rapid transit along the busiest, densest corridor in our city, it's not going away. And we are going to have to do it sooner or later. So that's one of the reasons for my optimism. I think the idea is so fundamentally strong that it's just not ignorable. How does this affect the task force, who now have been, you know, obviously extended their uh, their mandate to uh, March 16th, I believe it is. Does this change things if you're on that task force? I, I mean, does it make the LRT option more viable? I think it certainly does, yeah. I mean, one of the reasons um, they were brought in was, you know, the idea that we only have this much money and we have to figure out how to spend it effectively. Knowing that there's more money on the table, I think, should push them even more towards recognizing that this is not only going to give us the biggest uh, transportation benefit, the biggest economic benefit, the biggest transformational benefit, but it actually has the best chance of getting implemented quickly. Anything else we decide we want to do, there's years of study ahead of us, right? You can't spend a billion dollars without no. being really careful about how to decide to do that. So this is the project that's ready to go because we spent the last 13 years putting it together. So what happens with this latest information? What happens now? Well, uh, hopefully the task force members are listening. Um, I'm sure they are. I think they're all people who are kind of plugged into what's happening. I hope the province is listening. Uh, I hope they're, they're listening to the thousands of Hamiltonians who have spoken up and, you know, phoned, sent emails, sent letters, uh, telling the province you made a mistake, we expect you to fix it. Uh, and I hope they seize the opportunity that they've essentially given themselves to back out of this bad decision and get the project back on the table again. Any idea what it'll cost us to get back into this? 
Well, the good news is all the planning and all the studying and all the engineering work is already done. Yeah. We don't have to redo any of that. Metrolinx is still sitting on 60 properties that they bought, so we don't have to buy that. Um, really, if all if we would have to do at this point is restart the uh, request for proposal, so the, you know the RFP process. Um, otherwise, we're, it's basically ready to go. You know, we have some sunk costs of, you know, the three million dollars paid out to um, the uh, the proponents of the previous RFP. You know, got their cancellation fees. There's some money that's off the table that's gone. And of course, as time goes on, product project costs go up, just because of inflation and things like that. But really, I mean, we haven't really lost the $180 million we spent, unless we cancel it, in which case we have lost it. Right. Uh, what about those who were bidding and we were waiting for that process? Um, would, would they be jumping back on board or would they be skeptical now? That's a really good question. I mean, a lot of these organizations, it's several companies that form a strategic partnership in mm-hmm. order to bid on a specific project. I think if you're in that business, you understand what politics are like, you understand how these kind of projects can wax and wane. And to be fair, they will build uh, that uncertainty, that political uncertainty into their price. You know, these companies are not doing this to lose money. And so the more we dither, the more expensive that bid gets because they don't want to get left, you know, stuck on a half-finished project where the government decides to pull the flag on them again. Uh, do you think the lack of other options, as you said, man, how do you how do you spend a billion dollars without really doing some, some thought and, and some study there, some further consultation? Do you think the lack of another city-building project like this and now this new information is an advantage to the LRT? I do think so. It's I mean, not like I we can... got a second other big project very similar to it that's waiting in the wings. We could do that one or that one or that one. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's LRT or, you know, I mean, you could take the money and just kind of sprinkle it on little projects throughout the city. Yeah. You know, that's going to have some benefit. But, you know, one of the big biggest problems in the city is that every year we have to defer about $190 million worth of infrastructure life cycle maintenance. And the problem is that we have a very spread out city uh, that's not really that economically dynamic. And so every year it costs us more to service the land that we have than we bring in, in revenue. One of the reasons why LRT has been the centerpiece of our economic development strategy for the past decade plus is that it transforms the way we grow and the way we attract new development. And so what happens is as you build more high-density um, housing and offices and various different uses along that transport corridor, you increase your uh, assessment without having to add to your infrastructure, right? So we're not building miles of roads and miles of water lines and sewer lines. It, it actually transforms the relationship between how money comes in and how money goes out and allows us to get our affairs in order. If we just kind of sprinkle this money on little projects, we haven't changed that underlying um, yeah. unsustainable business model. We have. Yeah. Um, we're getting an email from a listener. What's the mayor's role now or city council's role now? Uh, the email says, uh, why doesn't the mayor hope the mayor uh, will try to arrange an, a meeting between the two transportation ministers? Is, is that possible? Uh, or is this all in the government's, uh, provincial government's hands? Well, I mean, ultimately the decision is in the provincial government's hands. But as, as the city mayor, um, Fred Eisenberg can do a lot in order to show leadership on this. And certainly I think he should be working the phones pretty hard. He should be pushing hard with the province. He should be pushing hard with the feds. And he should be asking for them to sit down together. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's absolutely got a role to play here. 
when do you think we will know more on this? Do you think this is going to drag out till the 16th? Uh, do you think we'll know something on this situation regarding the feds helping out before the 16th of March by the time the task force offers its uh, recommendation? I mean, my guess would be that the province is going to kind of sit on its hand until after the task force recommendations come out. And I don't know what kind of political kind of pressure is being placed, you know, in behind the scenes on any aspect of that. I'm sure there's a lot of moving parts. There are a lot of people with a lot invested in various different positions. And all those political machinations always happen. You know, it's it's the sausage getting made, right? We all enjoy a sausage, but no one likes to watch it get made. <laughs> I'm sure all that stuff is happening. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's all above my pay grade, to be honest with you. But uh, I really hope that at the end of the day, the, the best idea rises above all the politicking and all the noise and all of the agendas and emerges as the thing that we need to do. You know, I keep coming back to the task force. And again, with this information, that certainly does, uh, it certainly adds something to the LRT piece of all of this. So this has to be a concern for the task force, no? Oh, absolutely. I'm sure that, you know, if they haven't already met at their next meeting, they will be talking about this and they'll be talking about the implications of that, you know, essentially a federal, um, yeah. you know, I, I won't say a commitment, but they've, they're on record saying that they will provide funding for this. That's got to change their mind because they recognize, you know, they're, they're not a political entity in themselves, but they recognize that their, their recommendations are going into a political process. And they're all pretty savvy people. They understand how politics works. Uh, The federal government says it has the money to invest in the LRT project, but the mayor says that's up to the provincial government to officially ask for it. Boy, if it was just so simple. It seems so simple. Uh, Ryan McGrill is with us. Uh, Ryan McGrill, sorry, is with us. Editor of Raise the Hammer. RaiseTheHammer.org to find out more. Ryan, as always, thank you so much for your time. Much appreciated. Likewise. I really appreciate the opportunity. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about coronavirus. It seemed that for a while things had leveled out. And now as we're seeing clusters of infection show up in various areas, this is on the verge of becoming a pandemic, I guess in... Theoretically, it already is. It's hit uh, several continents. Uh, Here is the latest from the World Health Organization. We're at a decisive point. For the past two days, the number of new cases reported in the rest of the world has exceeded the number of new cases reported from China. And in the past 24 hours, seven countries have reported cases for the first time. My message to each of these countries is, this is your window of opportunity. If you act aggressively now, you can contain this virus. You can prevent people getting sick. You can save lives. No country should assume it won't get cases. That could be a fatal mistake, and quite literally. This virus does not respect borders. It does not distinguish between races or ethnicities. It has no regard for a country's GDP or level of development. All right. Um, Many are concerned uh, now that uh, the winter travel season has approached. How does this affect people and plans for those who are getting on planes and traveling to various parts of the world. Let's bring in Barry Choi, travel uh, travel expert. He is with us now. Barry, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. 
No problem. Is this having a dent in the Canadian travel industry? I mean, are we going to see uh, less people going to exotic destinations or destinations across the pond? Oh, I think it definitely works both ways. You know, you've already had the government say they expect a, a decrease in GDP just because they're expecting uh, less travelers coming in. I think you speak to any of your peers, your coworkers, anyone around you, and there's definitely some worries about should they be traveling, should they be modifying their plans, or should they stay at home and never leave? <laughs> yeah, just just put plastic on the windows and uh, and stay inside the tent. Uh, that being said, um, you know, I heard a, a different spin on this. Oddly enough, it was from Donald Trump. Um, and he said, well, the good news is, is more people will be staying at home. So I, I guess, although we don't have travelers coming here, and there may not be as many Canadians traveling to other places, does this, could this boost local destinations, people deciding to have the staycation instead? You know, I don't tell for a second that Canadians that were thinking about going to Europe or Asia are all of a sudden considering staying within Canada where there's been uh, less reported cases of COVID-19 uh, or maybe even considering road trips down to the U.S. where, again, there's been just less reported cases. Uh, so, so maybe this is an opportunity for Canadians, but at the same time, you know, if you're looking at just our tourism industry in general, we rely so much on international tourists, on Chinese tourists, mm. tourists all over the world. There's no denying that there's going to hurt uh, the bottom line, generally speaking. And I'm sure no matter how much Canadians uh, uh, travel or vacation domestically, that's not going to make up for the amount of tourists that come here, is it? Not at all. When you just look at a numbers base, like yeah. I don't remember what the population is Canada recently, but a lot of it is international travelers that are coming in, U.S. travelers, right? Uh, a lot of people in general are just, just kind of panicking with this uh, virus, and it's, I'm not trying to like downplay the seriousness of it. But at the same time, I personally don't let anything affect my travel plans unless there's official uh, government travel advisory. Uh, you know, just a few weeks ago, I went down to Dubai. Things were already starting to get a bit dicey with coronavirus. And to me, it was just not a destination at the time that had any cases and I felt comfortable getting on a plane and enjoying my time. Other than China, are there any other travel advisories for uh, places with the government telling us not to go? Or is it just a blanket statement where, you know, if it's an area that's infected, uh, you should probably stay away? I can think of Italy right now who's having some issues with it as well. Yeah, as far as official travel advisories are concerned, specifically related to coronavirus, uh, yeah, definitely China's the only one. But we all know that Italy's got the large number of cases outside of uh, China, South Korea, Iran's been picking up. There's no official uh, advisories there. But to me, it's kind of like it doesn't matter where you're going, when you're going. you got to use, use your regular precautions. you got to be smart with what you're doing. I was just saying how I went to Dubai. I do freely admit that I practically bathed in Perel when I was down there just to make sure I was mm. clean all the time. Um, so, yeah, you, you know, if you follow um, the the World Health Organization's recommendations to constantly washing your hands, make sure you're, you're, you're just trying to, like, you know, disinfect as often as possible – it's really the best you can do. You know, we kind of joked about how you could just tape up your windows at home and your doors and never leave, but yeah. it's just a society we want to live in. Um, I, th- I think everyone knows, statistically speaking, you know, you have a greater chance of dying in a car accident than you ever do catching an yeah. infectious disease or in a plane crash. So to me, I don't like to let these things run my life. Um, but at the same time, I totally understand that I'm not going to change anyone's mind who has already decided that, nope, this is the end of the world. I'm staying home. Uh, what about the cruise industry? How, has this affected the cruise industry in a negative way? Because we've certainly <laughs> heard about those that have been uh, held on a ship. 
I think this is going to be really tough on the cruise industry uh, long term because people are going to start to really understand what this means, not just for coronavirus, but like, you know, whenever there's any kind of quarantine for any kind of cruise ship, they're basically stuck at, um, you, you know, I guess docked, you could say, for like 14 days. And Does there need to be off. some sort of international protocol regarding this? I think so. You know, if you look at what happened in Japan, these passengers were held on for so long, but yet at the same time, Japan has admitted that, you know, the staff was coming on and off and there was a good chance that some of them were carrying the disease or, or had symptoms. So like you said, does there need to be international oh, uh, protocols? Probably, but will it happen? I don't think so. You know, who whose water or whose land are you in? You know, whose jurisdiction? And at the same time, um, you know, every company, I hate to say it, they're trying to make money. They want to you know, get those boats going or those yep. airplanes back in there, right? It comes down to dollars. Air Canada only canceled their, their flights to China, not for safety reasons, as the wife should believe. It's because they weren't holding enough passengers. Yeah. So it didn't make economical sense for them to fly there anymore. Mm. Uh, any advice for those that may be traveling this year? Yeah, for me, it's like always make sure you've got travel insurance, and that includes travel medical, trip cancellation, baggage, and all those things. Still, travel insurance is ra- rather inexpensive. Quite often, you already get it included with your credit card, uh, assuming you charge your trip to it. But you can also buy a multi-trip package that lasts you for a year for about $300. And, and you know, going back to what we were saying about those government travel advisories, those are the most important things. So as soon as the government of Canada issues a travel advisory saying avoid all travel to a certain country, then your insurance comes into play. You can cancel right away and that said if you're going to like a surrounding area like say asia and you're just not that comfortable you can talk to the airline they might waive the fee for you to change your your flight to say europe or somewhere else that you're more comfortable with um i I think companies are trying to be as accommodating as possible but at the same time no one really knows what's going on and people are just monitoring it almost on a week-to-week basis travel expert barry Choi is with us talking about the impact of coronavirus on travel as we head into the winter travel season barry thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Anytime. All right. We've been talking about uh, the coronavirus and how it appeared we uh, things sort of leveled off. And now it seems that there's uh, a bit more attention being paid to this uh, because of uh, areas outside of China, uh, which have uh, popped up. And as this uh, virus continues to spread quite rapidly Uh, to talk more about all of this and specifically uh, in regard to Hamilton's public health department, urging people who have returned from Wuhan, China or from that area of the Hubei province should self-isolate themselves for 14 days. To talk more about this, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson is with us, Chief Medical Officer, Public Health, City of Hamilton and with us now. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. So when did you come up with this protocol that anyone coming from this area uh, of China uh, should actually self-quarantine for 14 days? Is this relatively recent? So this has been going on now for at least a week or so that this uh, self-quarantining has been required. It's been part of the evolution that's been going on in in terms of a global response to what started out, of course, in Wuhan and Hubei in in China, and now we've seen spread to over 40 countries within the world. So there's there's really good coordination between the World Health Organization and our own Public Health Agency of Canada, as well as the Provincial uh, Office of the Chief Medical Officer of Health um, for Ontario. 
and again down to us within public health. So we do everything lockstep um, across the country. There's meetings that go on day, you know, all through the days between all these various levels to talk about what the approach is that is going to be taken and ensure that people are, are consistent. So it was a, it's actually the Public Health Agency of Canada and uh, and the province who's put in place these um, these measures, and uh, we're working to implement them here and work with people who may have come from Hubei here uh, in Hamilton. Uh, you talked about how this uh, has evolved. Uh, it seemed uh, a week or so ago, it, there wasn't as much chatter. Things had kind of leveled off. How do you explain these other cases that have popped up in other areas? So we know that uh, within China, and the WHO returned from their um, their mission to China uh, on the 24th, three days ago, and so they have been there to look and see for themselves in terms of what's going on. And the number of cases in the in the initial zone that was affected has leveled off and is decreasing. Uh, but unfortunately, we've had that um, movement of cases through travelers to other parts of the world. So whether it's to Hong Kong right nearby or to other parts of China or more more distantly to places like Italy, Iran, um, you know, into the U.S. And we've, of course, had some people who have had it here. And in some parts of the world, there have been um, there's been ongoing transmission, as we call it. So people getting sick from other people who have come from China and um, their number of cases has increased before they've been able to get right on top of it. So that's, of course, what we worry about is that, you know, somebody won't uh, won't recognize or won't report. And that's why we're, we're quite cautious and mindful of our measures in terms of helping to support people who have to do things like go into isolation because they're there to both monitor themselves, make sure they get better and the people who are close to them, but also, again, to protect all of us. Are you concerned that some may come and, and, and not heed this warning and instead just mix in with the population? I mean, self-quarantine, although it, it does seem to have been, been working, are you concerned that some won't do that? You know, what we've seen to date, and, you know, we had the cases in Toronto, we've had the case in London, Ontario, we've had, you know, the more recent cases that were related to uh, people returning from Iran. And Toronto. nothing in Hamilton, we should we should clarify that too. No cases That's in right. Hamilton reported. Go ahead. No cases at all in Hamilton. Um, but what we've seen from these people is a remarkable degree of understanding about what we're dealing with, about the concern that other people have. Of course, they have that concern about their own health too. And they've been very good about being, um, you know, working with government, working with our uh, agencies like ourselves to protect other people from the spread of that virus. So I would say the approach has been quite remarkable. But we, we think about that when we're asking about these approaches and so how do we help support people who are asking to self-isolate? You know, how do we get employers to understand that they may need to do that? How do we get yeah. food to them if they're single people that are living on their own? How do we support them so that they can take those measures to help protect all of us? Because that's a crucial part of making sure they come forward if that's the situation. And, and we should in. take and we should take this time to uh, give kudos to uh, the, everybody involved in the health industry who have worked so hard to contain this, uh, learning uh, specifically uh, situations from SARS and such. And as a result, that's why we are where we are, is being prepared for this. Is that accurate? That's absolutely accurate. You know, I, I was here working in, in Hamilton in public health when SARS happened, and it is remarkable to see how different it is in terms of the coordination 
um, the, the degree of communication, the issues being addressed, how quickly they're happening. Infection control, whether it's in a hospital and making sure our healthcare workers who, of course, see these individuals and we want to make sure that they're protected and stay well. Um, has come so far than uh, from where it was at that time. And, and as I said, just the collaboration, cooperation, the rapidity of the response is quite remarkable. Um, and so they're absolutely working very hard to, to try and slow this thing down. And it might help a little bit to understand why we are working so hard to try and slow this thing down, because the coronavirus, yes, it was um, a related virus that uh, caused SARS, and there's other coronaviruses that just call cause colds. And so some people may be saying, well, if it's if it's not that bad, if it's not like SARS, why is all this effort being put into it? And it's because it's a new virus. It's it's come from an animal origin. Nobody on this planet, it looks like, has been exposed to this virus before. And so people don't have immunity to it. And so even though it causes a, a relatively mild illness, nothing that's so severe as SARS or, or Ebola, for example, um, but it's quite much more like influenza, which we know does cause a number of deaths every year, uh, several thousand deaths every year, um, especially in people who are at high risk, who are older, who have multiple chronic conditions. It, With nobody having immunity, that sort of um, scale that could happen, the number of people who get sick, the number of people who get very sick would be, you know, both have a significant impact on our economy and on individuals, but also on our hospitals, which are already overburdened in our healthcare system. And so there's this tremendous effort to try and blunt, um, at the very least, ideally stop the spread of that illness so that um, people who are at significant risk don't get ill. We prevent deaths. And at the very least, we slow it down so that we can hopefully find a treatment that works, find a vaccine that works, or at least spread it out so there's health uh, system resources to help people who are quite sick. All right. Hamilton's Public Health Department urging people who have returned from the area of Wuhan, China, should self-isolate for 14 days. Common practice right across the country as a new coordina- uh, coordinated effort uh, takes hold. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson has been with us, Chief Medical Officer, Public Health, City of Hamilton, where there are no cases uh, as yet, but we certainly are prepared. Uh, Elizabeth, thank you so much for the time. Good luck with this. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.